The Apostle Paul said this, and he uses one of my favorite words in all the New Testament. Lavish. In him, Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he, here's the word, lavished upon us. Have you ever been treated lavishly? Have you experienced extravagance before? Have you ever received the luxurious treatment? I was introduced to the concept of lavishness on a camping trip as a young man. We went with my dad's extended family and all my cousins. We actually went in Kentucky, Nolan River Reservoir, and camped out. Good memories. We did it a few times. But I was introduced to the term lavished as a boy because as I observed my cousin Artie, his mother's disposition toward him and Pop during that week, it was very lavish. Why, outside his tent, there was a cooler that looked like a trailer for an 18-wheeler the lid of which I wasn't sure if both Artie and I had enough strength to open. And in it, there seemed to me to be an infinite reservoir of cans of pop for Artie to drink. Why, we finished breakfast, Artie get involved in an activity, and need a break for a grape soda, you know, at 9.30. Why, lunch, of course, you had to drown the food we were eating in another pop that he would have mid-afternoon. When the sun's out, you get parched. He would hydrate himself with another can of pop. But my family and my dear mother, who's still dear to me today, she's a great mom, the second greatest mom ever. I watched Andy be the first greatest mom. But anyway, my mom, I was under strict orders. First of all, our cooler was a lot smaller and, it, and, and, you know, pop, that was Friday night. We could have a glass of pop as kids with the family. That was, you know, a big party, you know. But on vacation, there were a lot of latitudes. I could have one can a day. And my mother was careful to take inventory of what was left in our cooler. But I was doing that all the while my cousin, Artie, was experiencing lavishness. Now, by the way, we can experience indulging lavishness is actually not healthy for us. My mother was actually really helping me out. Uh, she was uh, forestalling, uh, you know, type 2 diabetes and everything else that I was going to introduce to myself. And that's what a good mom does. But I picked up some idea of lavish that week. Then I come to read Ephesians 1. This is not a negative illustration of lavishness that's negative. It's glorious that God in Jesus Christ lavished his grace upon us. Wow. The kingdom of God is full of God's extravagance for his people. Lavish provision, abundant provision all that we need. Oh, to just coin a phrase this morning, all I have needed, God, your hand has provided. Great is your 
faithfulness. If you want to grasp what the kingdom of God is like, and that's what we're seeking to do in this series on the miracles. We're erecting these windows through which to look and see the glory of the kingdom of God. If you want to grasp what the kingdom of God is like, think what I need, God will lavishly provide. Now, you know we have a bad habit since the garden of being self-centered and getting our wants all tied in a knot with our needs and mistaking the two. But it is still true this morning that my God shall supply all of my need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And those are great reservoirs of riches. After this miracle that is before us this morning in John 6, the disciples began to develop a default reflex, and we need to as well as our faith grows. And here's the reflex. What I need, God will provide. To say it in another way, here we see what Abraham saw on Mount Moriah when he took up his son Isaac. And God revealed to him that he was Yahweh Jireh, the Lord who provides. And many of us are sitting here, actually seasoned veterans of having realized that our God, the God of the Bible, revealed in Jesus Christ, is the Lord who provides. And we sit here this morning with grateful hearts. Is that you? Is that me? Have we developed the natural reflex of, I know God will provide even when we cannot see it or know how it will take place. After John 6, the disciples began to develop that groove in their expectation that was, okay, I'm going to keep my eyes open, not for what I can see, but what I cannot see that God is going to provide. Now you say to me, Eric, and I'll tell you what, if I would have been with the disciples in John 6 and saw what they saw, if after he fed the multitude, I carried one of those baskets full of leftovers, I'll tell you what, I'd be all in to trusting the Lord. Well, how about this? Well, let's be with Jesus this morning in this story and be all in to trusting him, not because we see it, but because we recount what took place in the glory of John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Come there with me this morning. This is the only miracle that's recorded in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them contain this miracle. One would have to argue, at least, this piece of history God wanted us to get. And he included it and repeated it for emphasis. Now, John 5, you will remember, the miracle of the healing on the Sabbath day stirred up quite controversy. They were pushing back against our Lord they wanted to kill him. So in John chapter 6, he tries to get away from the persecution, the fervor that was developed, let things cool off a bit before he enters in again. But it didn't work because by this time, he's got a multitude following him, and they follow him out into the wilderness. That creates a problem. You get a big crowd, 5,000 men. It had to include women and children, maybe a crowd of a size of 20,000. 
how do you feed 20,000 that far away from Kroger? Walmart hadn't developed yet in the first century. It would come later. Let me read John 6, 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill... He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Hear the word of the Lord. This morning, I want to ask a question and give three answers to the question from this passage. That's our outline. Here's the question. How does this bag of leftovers shape our understanding of Christ and the kingdom? How does this bag of leftovers shape our understanding of Christ and his kingdom? Answer number one, kingdom people are driven by the pursuit of Jesus Christ, our king. Look at verses one and two, three and four. According to verse two, this is a large crowd. But the motive of the crowd is smoked out by John. A large crowd followed because they saw signs that he was doing on the sick. Hey, this was the best sideshow in all of Israel. People were being healed. It created quite a fervor. It created a following. Hey, come by. You just never know what's going to happen. And then Jesus starts this free lunch program. 
I mean, this was better than the county fair. No admission. Go watch the sideshow. People are healed. That's their motive. You get something to eat once in a while as well. That's why they were there. There's all sorts of reasons why people begin to congregate around Jesus. By the way, since it's just us, I'm so glad you're here. It's a wonderful group this morning. Why are you here? What are you after? You know, at one point, Andrew, John the Baptist in John chapter 1, he's explaining that it's not him, it's Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John preaches his way out of a congregation. And he says, don't follow me, follow him. It's him. So Andrew starts following and says, I, I would follow you. Jesus turns to him and he asks a question. It's interesting. He says in John 1.38, what do you seek? That's a fair question. If you ask these people, what do you seek? Hey, we're waiting for the next miracle to break out. Hey, we're waiting for the filet of fish sandwich. I heard they're free today. That's why we're here. Jesus looks at Andrew and he probes his motive and he probes ours. What do you seek? You see, in the kingdom, the prize is not the sideshow or the food. The prize is the Savior. The glory of the kingdom is Jesus, our Lord. And it's in seeking him that we plummet the depths of the glories of his kingdom. By the time you get to verses 14 and 15, the rumor's starting in the crowd. Hey, let's just go ahead and make him king. This may be a proto-movement of the idea that, hey, let's just get the king to feed us and care for us, you know, womb to tomb, then we'll be fine. You know, that idea may have broken out here. That was just a joke. It didn't go over very well. But that idea is hanging around this world these days. They conclude, verse 14, that a prophet, the prophet, has arisen. Definite article. It's like the Ohio State University. There's a reason why the definite article is there. It's, it's, it's the Ohio State University. The prophet. These are the words of Deuteronomy 18, where Moses said, people of God, someday he's going to arrive. It will be the prophet. And he says it in Deuteronomy 18. Chapter 18 and verse 15. He repeats it in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 18. And that became embedded in the people's vision of the future. And they were always looking around. Hey, is he here yet? An expectancy. And so the people say, hey, I, I think this is him. This is the, Deuteronomy chapter 18, prophet. Their motives were to eat and watch the show. What are ours? You know what? I find a lot of people interested in the gifts of Jesus. Maybe even eclipsing their interest in the giver of the gifts, Jesus himself. Why are you hanging around Jesus today? Why am I? Who are we really you know what kings do? Kings rule and subjects joyfully bow down to his rule. 
Psalm 2, they kiss his feet in submission in the glory of being related to the king by his grace. What we love about the kingdom of God is the king, the glory of the king. Do we pursue the king at Calvary Baptist Church? Or are we just here to see what we can get out of the king as we pull off from the Audubon to the good life, just a little filling station here, a little Jesus Twinkie and a frozen Coke Jesus, get back on the road to the Audubon to the good life and keep going, doing our thing? Or have we found in him our living sustenance? Have we found in him our hope, our all? And are we configuring our life around him? Worshiping the king. As they carried leftover bags of food from feeding the crowd, maybe a crowd of 20,000, I'm convinced the disciples weren't thinking about themselves. I'm convinced they walked away with the weight of the 12 bags of leftover fragments. They're thinking about the glory of the king. And they watched the king take such interest in the people. Did you note verse 4, verse 5, lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd. He sees us right where we are, right in our need, takes an interest in it and wants to disclose himself to us in the glories of his provision. This, in the disciples' heart, created a yearning to pursue him. I want to pursue Christ for his glory. Oh, yes, he cares for us along the way, providing for our needs. But I want to know him for his glory's sake. Look through this window, and you see the kingdom people are driven by the pursuit of Jesus Christ, the king. Secondly, King Jesus honors our trust in him by showing us his power and sufficiency. Look at verses 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Jesus saw the people in their need. That's verse 2. We already touched it. He's touched by the issues that they face. For him, it was an issue that the multitudes were there and were hungry and were around him. And his reflex was a yearning to meet their needs. Is that how you view Jesus? The Jesus of the Bible is aware of our need and he sees it. The Jesus of the Bible is desirous to generously meet our needs. I love that about Jesus. So Jesus pings Philip. Now this is the person most local in his circle of 12, the person most local to that area, he would know uh, the food marts and the places where you could go and says, hey, Philip, what, how, about, how, how are we going to feed this crew? He knew the resources. Now, Philip does quick accounting. He said, you know, if we had 200 denarii, that's eight months of a man's wage at the time. If we had eight months of accumulated wage, it wouldn't even begin to feed the crowd. Now, here you have the proverbial accountant. Now, I love accountants. And um, wow, do we not need shrewd accountants. I'm grateful for them. Um, 
as we dream about what could be, it's just not the only voice I let in the room of my mind. Because the accountant quickly says, this is not possible with the resources we have. Now, by the way, did Philip reckon it like it was? Answer, yes, he did. They didn't have the resources. He didn't, they didn't, this is not what they could pull off in and of themselves. Look, eight months wages wouldn't even give these persons a snack. It's not going to work. He was explaining all the reasons why it couldn't be done. The only thing that he didn't embed in his details of calculus was that he was with the king. And that Jesus brought to bear an ability and a sufficiency that would change the whole matter. It was when he considered Jesus after an incident like this that he realized, hey, we don't have the resources, but Jesus works through impossible things. We are in the midst of it at Calvary on several levels. The steel will drop this week for the Student Activity Center. God be praised. It's a long wait since the order in June. Who along the way, in the last 10 years, would have bet on an accumulation of $1,250,000, which is our targeted cost goal. We've yet to see the final price on the steel. The market is such that we won't know until it hits the ground. So we have a target. But God is helping us. We're within $50,000 of that. And I don't know a lot of people who would have bet on us getting there in these last 10 years. What do we say with the psalmist? This is the Lord's doings, marvelous in our eyes. Let's finish well. Oh, God be praised. Philip was careful. We need careful calculations. I, I appreciate the trust of having Matt, our executive director, be our CFO, and what he does, and his study of the numbers, his joy in the numbers, his granular knowledge of the numbers. It's really helpful because we want to maintain high trust environments here at Calvary and be stewards that on the great day the Lord will say, you were a faithful steward of what you were given. You stewarded it well. But as we consider everything, it's important to let Jesus be in the room too. Because Jesus taught these men, and he uses us in it. He asked Andrew, okay, Andrew, how are you going to solve this? God's going to use us in getting there. But he taught Philip and Andrew and the rest of them something about what to consider when we're trying to figure out how it's going to be done. By the way, have you ever considered you had very little to offer the Lord? If I was, you know, slugging percentage-wise, it's almost baseball season here. Uh, I, I would say that um, I've had a slugging percentage of about 750 in terms of people that I've been around in pastoral ministry who were convinced they had nothing to offer our Lord. And if it was anything, it was so meager, the Lord could never do anything with it. This boy shows up with five barley loaves, by the way. The poor people in the first century ate barley for bread because it was cheaper. And they would make it their bread product out of barley. 
Then it was two pickled fish. It was a little sack. Somebody had given it to him for lunch. I would love to interview this little boy after this incident, wouldn't you? This is amazing. He brings it, sits down, and Andrew says, oh, we got, we got this. You got what? Oh, well, this is a little boy's lunch. It's not going to do anything. Five barley loaves. He says, have him sit down. And he gives thanks. And then he starts giving it to them to pass out. Now, I'm sure if there's 5,000 men, there's children, women there, maybe 20,000 people there, not a whole lot of people knew where on earth this was coming from. It was coming from the hands of Jesus. He just kept breaking the bread, not unlike the old widow who just kept pouring out the oil. But as the disciples watch what's going on, having been a part of the conversation, their trust in him begins to be bolstered. By the way, they also began to be convinced that my meager can be useful to Jesus. What do I do with it? I just give it to Jesus. Oh, Jesus, I don't have much to offer you. Jesus does not ask us how much we have to offer him. He just asks us to offer him what we have. And if you're willing to do that, you can experience some of the glory that these folks experienced in John 6 because Jesus took five barley loaves and two pickled fish and fed the crew. That's who he is. The more we begin to grasp Christ's sufficiency, the more our trust in him grows. Trust is built over time. By the way, I've had congregants, and they've been so joyful to be around, teach me about how to trust God in Christ at a deeper level than where I was. I'd be with them in suffering. I'd be with them in the midst of wrenching diagnosis. I was dying a thousand deaths for them, trying my dead level best to not concede the fear and anxiety I had in my heart. And I would look at the rest in their spirit as they just stretched themselves out on a sovereign God who is good and all-powerful and works all things out for good to those who are called according to his purpose and those who love him. And I've had to go away from that and say, Lord, give me that heart. Give me that trust. Now the corollary is also true that if we do not see Jesus as sufficient, we won't trust him. Because when we see him as sufficient, we'll begin to trust him at levels that we've never trusted him before. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Isn't that the song we ought to sing this morning? Is Jesus sufficient to you? Is your capacity to trust our Lord growing? The disciples came into John 6 in one place, and they left carrying a bag, and their faith was in a completely different place. I think they were on the cusp of developing a capacity and an ability and a willingness to stretch themselves out on God and his promise. Or as Vance Habner, the old mountain preacher from North Carolina, used to say, here we are, stranded out here on omnipotence and shipwrecked 
on the sovereignty of God. And he said, that's right where I want to be. Because it's when we get there that we see his sufficiency in a way that we wouldn't see it unless we were there on that spot. Are you there this morning? Oh, carry away in your heart what the disciples carried away when they had those bags. And let's talk about the bags. The third answer to the question is the kingdom of God is full of Christ's lavish provision and no, absolutely no, lack. Look at 11, 12, and 13. The language of this passage is full of a great contrast. There are two pools. There is lack and there is abundance. 6.2 and 6.5 uses the word large twice to speak of the crowd. There's a lot of people here. Verse 5, Jesus saw their need. Verse 6, the plan is already hatched. Verse 7, Philip's calculus, this is not enough to give each person a little. Verse 11, they all got as much as they wanted. Verse 12, when they had eaten their fill. John goes out of the way as a narrator to say, this wasn't a little communion wafer. They were satiated with this food. Completely filled up. So much so that, verse 12, they have to gather leftovers. Verse 13, there are 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left. Huh, 12. That's an interesting number. Each of the disciples was issued a bag. Go collect the fragments. Now, there there are bags and there are bags. You can go to Kroger and get a bag. One of those little plastic bags. Then Andy, a few years ago, ran across, the, I don't know, it's like these six-ply plastic uh, yard waste bags. You can put a 55-gallon drum in them. I mean, they're, they're atomic bags. You know, there are bags and there are bags. Now, the particular word that John uses for this bag is a larger bag. And it accents the fact that they picked up more than usual. This is the bag they put a stash of fish in after fishing. This is the bag they put all their stuff in the market. It's a larger bag. Twelve larger bags full of this so that the disciples would remember what Jesus did, who he is, and his ability to provide. This affected them. There was ample size. These leftovers speak volumes about this meal and this incident. In fact, that's why this is entitled, When Leftovers Shape the Meal's Delight. They're picking up these bags. They all come together. They have 12 bags. It's full of fragments. Remember, this all started in one little guy's bag. It created a draw in their hearts for allegiance to Christ. It created a default that said, wait a minute. Everybody was satisfied and filled up, and there's more left over than we had in the beginning. Jesus Christ is able to be with us in our crises and in our moments to demonstrate things that we would never understand apart from the crises and glories that we would come to understand and relish about him that we wouldn't know if we had not been put in those circumstances. When it was all over, everybody was satisfied and filled. 
not even the large crowd could strain the limits of Christ's provision, infinite provision. Well did Mary sing after the angel visited her in the Magnificat in Luke 1. He has filled the hungry with good things. Well did Paul say in Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Well did Jeremiah say 700 years before Jesus ever got here, My people will be filled with my bounty. Could it have been that from this point the disciples inherently threw in their lot with Jesus and trusted the outcome of what Jesus would do because he was present with them and could do things that were both unimaginable and considered impossible by them? Here, they learn to trust Jesus. Have we? And is that us this morning with our moments, with our circumstances, with the situations that we face? Is relying upon him greatly valued at Calvary? Do we come for him to worship the king? It needs to be if we want to be a God-honoring church. A people marked by inherent faith, our default reflex as we walk through life in this broken world. Jesus, is that good? Now this super interested multitude, by the time you get to John 6, 66, they're nowhere to be found. There's only 12 left. And Jesus said, you, you guys leaving too? And Peter for them said the truth, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to him. Let us lay hold of him with all of our might, with inherent trust that delights in his ability to provide what we need, all that we need for life and godliness, as Peter says, in this good way, following Christ. Father, sift our hearts this morning. Why are we here? What are we seeking? Do we really know the sweetness of trusting you? Or do we worry around and have anxious hearts trying to save ourselves and count on the resources that we can put in our pocket and have in our hand? Lord, teach us to relax and lay in the hammock of your good care and actively obey you with a trust that honors you. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Make it so Calvary is full of people who please you because they trust you. You're worthy of our trust. We see it through the window of this miracle. Lord, there are people here this morning, all of us, who need the encouragement of your faithful provision, which is sufficient in Christ. Meet it out to us today. Draw our attention away from lesser things. Unto the one who loved us and gave himself for us and offers his care for his own. Thank you. We love you. 
hear us respond in song this morning, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name.